Welcome to this New School Conversation with Ram Das and Rachel Naomi Raman. My name is Michael Lerner, and today we're talking about healing, aging, and dying. Uh, Rachel Naomi Raman, my colleague at Commonweal, is Director of the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness. She is Medical Director of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program, and she is a clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Rondas is well known to many of you, uh, but many of you don't know his, uh, his whole story, and it's worth just taking a few minutes to describe some of his uh, varied experiences on his path. Um, born in 1931, he studied uh, psychology at Wesleyan and got a Ph.D. from Stanford, was then on the faculty at Stanford and the University of California, and from 1958 to 1963 taught and did research in the Department of Social Relations and the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. Uh, in 1961, he began, began explorations of consciousness with Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner, Aldous Huxley, Allen Ginsberg and others, uh, and explored uh, psychedelic uh, chemicals. Uh, out of this research came two books, and because of the controversial nature of this research, he was dismissed from Harvard in 1963. He continued his research under the auspices of a private foundation until 1967 when he traveled to India, where he met his uh, spiritual teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, who gave Ramdas his name, which means servant of God. And since 1968, Ramdas has pursued a variety of spiritual methods and practices from various ancient wisdom traditions, including devotional yoga focused on the Hindu spiritual figure Hanuman, meditation in a uh, whole series of different traditions, karma yoga, Sufi, and Jewish studies. And he also practices service to others as a spiritual path. In 1974, he created the Hanuman Foundation, which developed the Prison Ashram Project designed to help prison inmates grow spiritually, and the Dying Project conceived as a spiritual support structure for consciousness and dying. Uh, he has published about a dozen books, including Be Here Now, The Only Dance There Is, Grist for the Mill, How Can I Help, and more recently, Still Here, Embracing Aging, Changing, and Dying. Uh, in 1997, uh, almost exactly uh, 10 years ago this month, he experienced a stroke which left him with expressive aphasia and partial paralysis. The after effects of the stroke uh, made it necessary for him to change the plans he was making at that time, and now he is living and continuing his work in Hawaii and on the island of Maui. He is a co-founder and advisory board member of the SEVA Foundation, an international service organization, and he continues to teach about the nature of consciousness and about service as a spiritual path. Ramdas, one of our central interests, as you know, that Rachel and I and others have pursued at Commonweal is in our subject, healing, aging, and dying. And when we visited with you a month ago in Hawaii in your sunlit home overlooking the ocean, uh, what struck me more than anything was how radiant and joyful you seemed. And I asked you what was uppermost in your mind. You reflected for a while, and you said, healing. And uh, you proceeded to tell me about the trajectory of your experience with your stroke and how 
your experience with a stroke had changed over time. And I wondered if we could start just with the evolution of your experience uh, in healing with your stroke. Okay. Um, the night before the stroke, I was trying to write a book about aging, and I was only about 65, and I decided I really wasn't competent to do that book. And I sort of asked God for experiences which would make me better able to write the book on aging. And then I went to sleep, and when I was asleep, I was stroked. And when I woke up in the, in the morning, I found that my right foot, I was crippled by it, and I didn't know it was a stroke. And I, I decided that I had a, a powerful mind because there I wanted aging, and I was getting, giving it to myself. I didn't know it was a stroke, but they were all discussing my death, although I didn't, I was not conscious of anything about death. But I went into a, uh, a depression, but it was interesting. It's a, a spiritual depression because I, I had lived a very graced life having met my guru, and I suddenly felt this stroke is, is the, the end. I've, I've not, I was not having grace. And uh, so it was about two weeks, I think, that I, of that uh, feeling of being let down. I felt like my guru was out to lunch. He, was, he wasn't gracing me. Yes. Then after about two weeks, I had a picture of him in, in the wall in the hospital, and I started to look at his picture and think of his grace. And then I, I was surrounded by people who went, uh, oh, it's too bad, you poor thing, you have a stroke. And uh, it felt the, the stroke was lack of grace. But about after about some weeks, I get I, the, his grace and the stroke started to come together. And I started to think of the stroke as grace. And I started to notice how it, it, it gave me silence. It gave me a place to sit all the time with the wheelchair. And uh, it gave me a way into people who were suffering because they saw that I was suffering. Yes. And also, there were people in my audiences that 
they were there because their wife has brought them or something like that. And they were sitting, hands crossed, arms crossed, and they'd be, I was, I was, I was noticing that my infirmity got them. It got their hearts. And, and that I could work with their hearts. And um, as long as I was in California, it was the stroke was grace. And then I went to um, John of God in, in uh, Brazil. Yes. And then I came here at Maui. And there was so much emphasis on healing and I was feeling, if I'm healing, I'm, I'm looking, taking this grace of this, this stroke, and I shouldn't be pu- pushing away the stroke. And then my doctors here said they could feel that I was pushing away healing, and. So I started to do, do healing, and it went incredibly. And I suddenly saw that healing was the grace. It was the the stroke was grace, and the healing was grace. And and here I am in Maui. I've got uh, healing grace. And I'm healing with um, allopathic Chinese herbs, acupuncture, and uh, rolfing, and uh, oh, so many things, and physical therapy. And the the healing of this island is just magnificent. I walk in the swimming pool because the water keeps me up and once a week I go in the ocean swimming and uh, I boy I feel wonderful oh wonderful 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 description Ramdas Rachel as you listen to Ramdas what does this evoke for you well actually um, it evokes a memory Ramdas of the very first time that I saw you uh-huh. Uh, I, have, I was one of those people that was dragged along by somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, mostly it was a guy I was attracted to, so I, I went quite willingly, but I wasn't at all interested in you. I was interested in him. And uh, I, I went to Dominican, and you came into the room. You sat down on the only seat that there was, which was a chair on the stage, and you looked at the audience, and I waited for you to say something wise and important. And you didn't say anything at all. And you didn't say anything at all for about 20 minutes. And gradually people became more and more comfortable with the silence. And something started to happen in that silence for me. It was a kind of a direction that I had always known was there in me but had never really felt before. And you did that with the power of your silence. You enabled a silence to be present in me and enabled me to be able 
to learn how to listen to the silence in myself by sitting there for 20 minutes like that. And uh, I was wondering what you had learned further about the power of silence through this stroke. Well, because of aphasia, I have gotten to uh, keep silence even in my lectures. And, uh, but in the lectures previously, I have to explain the silence and saying, uh, we'll all meditate. And now I don't want to say anything. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have to put up a, a silence because I have aphasia. And then I said, now you can spend the time feeling sorry for me. <laughs> but I, could, I think you spend the time enjoying the silence. And that's part of the, the joy of the, of the stroke. Ramdas, you mentioned when I saw you in Hawaii that uh, something that connects with what you just said about how the stroke enabled you to reach the hearts of those who had come to listen to you and were sitting with their arms crossed. And you talked about how uh, when you do counseling with people who are dying, uh, people with HIV and other conditions, that your approach is to seek to merge your suffering with their suffering. And I had never really thought about it that way. And I wondered if you could say more about how you do that and what it means to you to do counseling by merging your own suffering with the suffering of the person you were with. Well, there's quite a difference between uh, compassion and other ways of dealing with another person because compassion is when you're one with the person because then their suffering becomes our suffering and my suffering becomes our suffering and we we deal with the human condition and I try not to give them the role of being a sick person, which puts them in that role, um, if I'm in the role of a helper. So I try not to get into the helper role, even though I might act it, but my consciousness is both... both uh, we are souls dealing with the consciousness of the incarnation. Rachel, in your work with counseling with uh, people who are dying, is your approach similar to the one Ramdas describes, or is it different? I just wanted to say something to Ramdas around this, the, the, the suffering, the, the the blending of suffering, the recognition that it's one suffering, and it's the suffering that we all have and are all vulnerable to because we are incarnated. Isn't it the hardest thing, though, to accept your own suffering enough 
that you're not pushing the suffering away from yourself, your suffering and the other person's suffering, that you're willing to be there with it so that it can deepen and change? How, how does that happen? How do you learn to accept the suffering enough so that you can be with the other person who is suffering? You mean my own suffering or theirs? Well, I don't think perhaps without accepting your own suffering, you can't accept anybody else's suffering. Yeah. Well, I I move into certain uh, planes of consciousness. For example, um, the witness. And I, I am witnessing my thoughts, and the thoughts are what is causing the suffering. Now I, I'm witnessing my thoughts, and therefore those thoughts are my suffering, and when I'm witnessing, the witness doesn't suffer. Ah, ah. So when you are with a person who is not in that place, who is pushing the suffering away, who is not witnessing, then, suffering of their own. Then I invite them in to witness our suffering, ah. because in fact they they usually they're telling me what they're going through, and the telling of it is witnessing it. Yes, yes, you know. In my experience, I think it's interesting, isn't it, Michael, that all three of us have had, you know, significant illness. That's right. Of one sort or another. In my experience, the loneliness of the suffering is the thing that is hardest for me. And when the loneliness is eased because someone is sitting with me and unafraid to sit with me wherever I'm going, Mm. then I'm able to witness. Yeah. There's something about that, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a rather radical thought to explore with the two of you, um, because we all have had these experiences with life-threatening illness. And then we've all done something with those experiences that is not completely ordinary, in that almost everybody, when you're stroked in one way or another, um, most people need to talk about it, as Ramdas, as you were saying, the person is describing what they're going through. Um, what some people do, what certainly each of us has done, is to take our illness, to take our own suffering, and to work with it, both to try to serve our own experience and also to serve others. What has struck me about that process is that somehow the the originally nonverbal experience of just being thrown into a completely different universe becomes over time for me as I talk to other people about it, it becomes ineluctably a kind of performance. That is to say that I find a way of telling the story that makes sense and is useful to others. And in doing so, I shape it in a way that uh, that 
is different from the absolutely nonverbal sort of awestruck place that I was in originally. I was reading a a review of a remarkable book by Colin Tudge called something like The Tree, which is a great study of trees. And, uh, and Colin Tudge, a great British naturalist, said, you know, a tree is not an, uh, is not a, an inanimate object. He said a tree is actually a performance. It's a, it is a performance of life. It is constantly changing. It is constantly moving. And it made me think of the way I work with my own uh, uh, health and illness and how the process of shaping it so that it can be of service to others is not in a negative sense, but in some actual way, a performance. It moves it into a shape uh, that it didn't have originally in the moment. And Rondas, I'm just curious, because I've never tried this thought out on anybody before. Have you found that the process of working with your stroke, of shaping the experience so that it can be of service to others, uh, has it changed the original experience for you? Uh, I think what happens is that I find myself uh, disappointed in the wording of the words because they they don't represent the the feelings of the stroke. That's uh, what I was trying to say. And I find that I would like to give people the experience, but not through words. <laughs> Rachel, have you had any of these experiences? Well, you know, I've been at this a very long time, uh, 53 years, actually, since I became... Um, uh, a person with a chronic illness. Um, and, you know, I, perhaps, uh, you know, I, I'm less of an intellectual person, less of an enlightened person. Um, but at the beginning, um, there was a lot of drama. I mean, it was all drama. Yeah. And uh, it was it was a lot about being special. Mm-hmm. So I was special. I was a hero, I was a victim, I was whatever it was. Yeah. I, I was doing a lot of things with this and, and pulling people into the drama in one way or another for a long, 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 long time. And then, you know, um, this thing, instead of making me special, started to make me real. Real? Real. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it wasn't like I was shaping it. I had become shaped by it Mm. in ways that I had never even known it was possible to be shaped. And I became, in a funny way, larger and much more able to accompany people through darkness than I was when I was, quote, whole and well. Yeah, yeah. And I can't say that I shaped it I, to help people. I would say that it shaped me so I was able to help in some way. I think that's right. Uh, certainly I've been deeply shaped by the experience, but there's a sense for me in which having been shaped by it that uh, this ch- 
changed self in turn, as Ramdas said, finds a way to put it into words that assumes a shape, and yet that shape of the words is a, a kind of a curtain between the actual experience and, you know, and uh, and what I would actually like to convey and what I'm able to convey in words. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking today about this conversation, I, w- I was thinking, how could we have this conversation so that people who are listening or participating, who are actively facing, uh, you know, uh, uh, being very ill or dying in its acute experience, that we're speaking to them. Uh, and I was, uh, I was wondering how that was possible, mm-hmm. uh, given that each of us uh, is uh, now at, at some distance uh, or other from the acute phase of, of our own experience. You know, Michael, uh, again, I think many, there are different sorts of people. I am not, even though I'm a writer, I'm not a word person. Um, Word is always a translation for me of something else. So I have something, and then I have to sort of translate it from that into words, like translating from English into French. But what I get, and I sense this in you, in, in the time since your, your heart event, there gets to be a kind of a presence and a kind of a showing up that you were not able to do before. Mm-hmm. People recognize this, and mm. they recognize, one, that they're safe with you, that you will not judge them as a lesser person because they're suffering or they're ill. And it's something that is conveyed not by the story of the illness, but by the change in you that the illness has wrought. You know, um, before uh, my stroke, I wrote a book called How Can I Help? And I was very um, powerful in my helping. And I found it a very powerful role. And now, I, if I want to write a book, I'd have to say, how could you help me? Yes. <laughs> and what ha- happened was the stroke brought me to dependency, and this was a whole new part of my being. And I found that my caretakers and I we were together souls. We were giving each other spiritual solace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you can do that in the storytelling as well, of course. It's just that for a person like me, it is better, it's easier for me to do that without words. How do you do it without words, Rachel? I think it's a question of presence. I think yep. there are, yeah, yeah. I, I think there are so many, probably nonverbal cues. But you know, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of suffering anymore. Mm. Um, and I think that everyone that sits with me after a while 
they get less afraid. And then it can begin. You know, the real thing can be. And how do you do that? I don't know. But the story of the illness, telling my story, perhaps because I've been sick for so long, I really haven't told my story, except little snippets of it here and there where I feel maybe it might be useful, for a long, long time. And my story doesn't even interest me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little boring after all this time. (laughs) What's interesting is being present enough with another person so that you are Oh, together. How did you put that, Rhonda? Soul? Together as souls? That interests me. That feels like why... That feels like what we... All we need to do. Feels like all we need to do. Yeah. Uh, that, that, the presence makes me feel about my girl. My girl died in about, uh, uh, 74 and I talk to my guru all the time and some people say you talk to your dead guru but that's that's pretty pretty, pretty far out and so I it, it works this way I feel the presence his presence or the presence and then, with that feeling, I construct a dialogue, which is, it comes out of my imagination. So when somebody says, talking to you, you guru, it's only, only your imagination. Well, I say, yeah, it's only my imagination. But he gets into my imagination. And I say... God, guru, and self are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so that I'm talking to my higher self. It's like the ultimate healing of loneliness. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe that's why we're here, to heal each other's loneliness as we age and as we die and as we suffer. That's well, the thing we do. Well, loneliness is, a, is an ego problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because aloneness is the next level. Oh, uh, oh, say more. Well, when you become the one or become that loving awareness, you are the one. You are you are identifying with your awareness. Mm-hmm. And that is it is part of the the God, mm-hmm. and that is it's just aloneness. You know, Ramdas, when you speak of uh, the remembrance of that loving awareness, that you become one with your higher self, with your guru, uh, with God. It makes me reflect. I've been uh, immersed recently in the period of time around the Mediterranean uh, in the centuries just before and after the 
the birth of Christ and the Common Era. And what's really striking to me is that this awareness of oneness was pandemic in all the Abrahamic faiths and uh, many other faiths as well. There was just an extraordinary uh, sense of what's called, you know, the Gnostic mystery of oneness that was yes. around. And then there was this process uh, that took place by which some combination of the tribal impulses and the organizational processes of the Christian and Jewish and Islamic faiths and others, uh, and they separated from each other uh, and from this awareness of oneness and created uh, public theologies that uh, emphasized their differences rather than this oneness. And I often ask myself, was this a uh, necessary development in human consciousness uh, that we would go through 2,000 years of uh, struggling, sometimes horrifically, with these divisions among the faiths, because I have a, a very strong sense that there is a return of awareness of this oneness that is taking place that extends to many, many different areas, and not only healing, aging, and dying, but also to the awareness of the oneness of life on Earth, uh, the awareness of oneness in different scientific disciplines, what E.O. Wilson calls convergence. Yep. There just seems to be a return of this theme of oneness. And I wondered yes, if, yes, yes. if you would reflect on that and reflect on how can we help this move forward in the global culture at every level again. Yeah. Because the the evolution of many to the one, now we're in the midst of that evolution. And you're absolutely right. It's in many, many fields. It's also moving from the head to the heart. Yes. Because the heart is where the oneness is. And the head is thoughts, 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 and objectivity and things like that, and dualism. In a way, we have the, the mind as a tremendous vehicle for us to, 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 for us, and also the downfall of our our, our, all of our culture. Rachel, does this bring up any thoughts for you, this aspect of the conversation? Well, the, the thought that I have goes back to sustainability, um, Michael. As I think what both you and Ramdas are saying is that the direction of sustainability is the growing awareness and the coming home again to oneness. And that Underneath all of our um, efforts, and there's so many of us working on this in so many different ways, save the planet, the toxicities, um, and what is bringing healing into um, medicine, bringing justice into the law, all of this. 
that underneath all of this is an effort to go back to the oneness because without without the awareness of the oneness in everyone we probably can't go on we can't act in ways that will really save the planet and we can't act in ways that will ensure the continuity of the human race that's true that's true it's like um, the United Nations is is egos, 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 yeah. and it's many, many, and it's too bad the 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 uh, the, the institutional structure uh, didn't m- make it one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's almost like you can't do it with structure, can you? Don't you think perhaps you yeah. have to do it with consciousness? That's right. And then yeah. the structure follows the consciousness rather than the structure causing the consciousness. Yeah. And um, it's almost like we are struggling as fast as we can to grow up so we can stay alive. Yeah. Something like that. Michael, what do you think? Well, I think this is a very powerful um uh, conversation about uh, questions that are central in my mind, and I agree deeply with both of you that we are in this uh, process of trying to grow up before, in our adolescent phase, we do too much damage to ourselves and to the rest of life on this earth. I also think that one of the realities that we face is that the struggle for sustainability will never be finally won. The the human venture, I suspect, on Earth always has been and probably always will be a a perilous enterprise, and we will always live uh, with suffering and uh, with uh, endless challenges, even if we succeed in in moving uh, decisively toward a more sustainable world. And therefore, it seems to me that we cannot imagine moving toward a a static consciousness of oneness any more than a static system of sustainability and justice, but rather a deeper consciousness of what is perhaps an endless evolution, both of ourselves as individuals and of our collective destiny as a species and uh, as uh, stewards of life on Earth. So somehow, to me, this conversation begins to come full circle because um, one comes back to the ongoing need that we have and will have to address human suffering. One of my own experiences... Uh, which certainly resonates in in much of the world literature on on the the wisdom traditions, is that it is precisely in my experience of suffering, if I can simply be conscious enough to be present with it, that uh, the the light, whatever one calls the the divine, uh, is present. That, that that there's an inseparability for me of uh, 
experience of conscious suffering and awareness of the light. And I know it's not the only way we get to the light. I know we can get there through joy and art and creativity and in many other ways. But it always strikes me as one of the most extraordinary things about the design of being human, that we were designed uh, so that when we suffer, there is this possibility that the wound is not only a wound but an opening and that the light is present. Um, and I know you both have reflected on that, and I'd love to just hear any thoughts, uh, Ramdas, that, that uh, come to you on the subject to start. Well, I think uh, the, the Buddha's first noble truth is there is suffering. I, I mean, I look at... I look. What lessons have I learned during this incarnation? And I, I've learned about suffering and about compassion. But I was down with um, John of God, and I, and I started to work with joy. And I looked at my life. And my life was centered around suffering. And right after that, I centered it around joy. And then it's, it's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> and, you know, it's so visible, Ramdas, when I saw you, that uh, you just seemed to be... Um, uh, just radiating joy. And it was just a very striking experience for me because uh, uh, I had seen you much closer to the stroke when you were, you know, working with the fierce grace that you yeah. had experienced. And, and it was so wonderful to see this. And I must confess that I have not made that transition uh, to being centered around joy. Do you have any operating instructions for those of us who haven't figured that out yet as to how you managed to do that? Oh, boy. It, it really, it, it, it's, it's transformed every single thought and feeling. And um, there was one day when I, when I looked at my life and my culture's life and how they were it was all centered around suffering and then I thought what would happen if made it centered around joy because I kept think, thinking about joy and it took I'd say about um, two weeks to to <laughs> to change. How did you do it? Oh, gosh. Well, my, my, my guru had instructed me, um, uh, love everybody. And as I tried to do that, it was just joyful. It was joyful. 
just that that loving everybody. Mm. Just a thought. Um, I was just thinking how joy is really not a part of the American culture. No. <laughs> Happiness is the thing that we're all going for. Yeah. And it's different than joy. And as you were talking, Ram Dass, I was thinking, you know, I hear pe- people in their minds saying, hey, this guy's got a stroke. What the hell is he talking about joy? <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, please. <laughs> but, you know, in a funny way, joy is invulnerable. Happiness is vulnerable. Happiness is impermanent. Joy is not. Yes. And what I was getting is, I was just, uh, just, is that happiness is you need things to go your way. Mm-hmm. Happiness is the absence of suffering. You cannot be suffering and be happy. That's crazy. So joy is different than that. Because you can suffer and be joyful. Joy is is a spiritual uh, value, ah. and happiness is a worldly value. Ah, say say more, say more about that. Well, I think you ha- and happiness is a step towards joy. Joy is like um, it's it it you just like you say, it's beyond. Time and space. Well, you know, I find myself thinking there's this thing like the cosmic giggle. Yeah. That if we had, if we were able to expand our consciousness beyond the human and understand mm-hmm. the great direction and flow and purpose of all of this, our response to it would be a giggle that would last forever. <laughs> You know, and that somehow joy it comes from, for me, just a, just being alive. That's right. Aliveness is, 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 is what's underneath it. Willing to show up and meet with and curiosity about, what. Well, no, so what's this? You know, kind of, um, it's like, um, oh, I don't know, it, it's, there's a passion in it, which there really isn't in happiness. Happiness is I show up for the things that give me pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, and, and they're vulnerable because if something makes me happy, it, it could be taken away from me in a minute. And so I have to hold on to it. That's right. Whereas yeah. for me, joy is a state of being. And I hear that you have moved into that, Ram Dass. Well, you know, the way I've been uh, uh, a model, which is... Uh, I've been going through the difference of two, uh, two planes of consciousness. The plane of consciousness, which the ego and... The plane of consciousness is the soul, and now I've what I've done is converted my perception to the soul plane, 
And because a soul comes into the incarnation from many other incarnations, and the soul is a spiritual entity, it's much nicer to view yourself as a spiritual entity and then just dipping into the incarnation. So a soul with an ego rather than an ego with a soul? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. So you have, you are both, but That's right. where you center yourself. See, it, I, I've always, people, people, we are, um, we, are, we, homo sapiens, have two plain consciousnesses. You know, it's so interesting. I have a little cousin who's about five now, but when she was four, I was helping her to go to bed, and she's brushing her teeth. And she says to me, why do I have to brush my teeth? And instead of hearing it as a four-year-old saying that, I heard it in a whole other way. You know? Yeah. It's like, I mean, why, why do I have to be, why do I have to have teeth and need to take care of them and yeah. brush them? And, you know, I heard it in, in a way that was almost bewildered. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question would change a lot for me if I knew why I had to brush my teeth why I was here in this body, why I am vulnerable to suffering, why why I am involved like this in this level of being, um, I think I could do it with much greater grace <laughs> do it now. That's looking yeah. at it from the soul point. Yeah. Ah. And I realized that the witness is the soul. The witness is the witness the is yeah. the witness of your your incarnation. Is the soul. Is the soul. Mm-hmm. Ramdas and Rachel, before we uh, open this up to uh, questions, um, I'm there's one thing, Ramdas, that you've mentioned that I'm sure I'm not the only one who's curious about, which is uh, this experience with John of God, where you made this movement from suffering to joy. And uh, I'm sure many people may or may not have heard of John of God, but I just wondered, could you describe him, describe your encounter with him, and describe what the experience was like? Yeah, he, um, he is a medium. He's a, a, a farmer, and when he was about 14, 13, 20, I know, uh, uh, 15, he was walking in the woods, and he heard um, a voice uh, that said to him, go to a, a church, that, a very a specific church, and they'll be waiting for you. And so he walked to this church, and he knocked on the door, and a big crowd 
welcomed him, and he he and from then on, he uh, uh, his he doesn't remember anything from that point until he got out of the church, and ways one people came out of the church. They were saying to him, "You were, you were, you have healed us. You have healed us." And he was bewildered. He was, he was going to be a tailor like his father. And um, uh, when he went into the church, a an astral healer took over his body. And that's why he didn't remember that. And now what you do is you go in a line of which there are hundreds of people and he gets it, it, and you are faced with him or what you what you the, the in him is the these astral doctors and um, they will give you certain procedures and so on to cure you and that they are astral doctors and they are they they know your illness but they know your the source of your illness and they know your incarnations and they they're speaking from wisdom that we don't have and his face changes as these astral doctors come into him and the place is its purity and its faith it's i just broke down i was just i couldn't stand it it was it was just like the temple i i'm uh, my guru and i know each other as when uh, in india and the the it's the presence again that rachel brought, spoke about and there are two two rooms there are people meditating in the rooms and you go through those rooms and the one that he's in there are the meditators and the 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 the, the place this all to to the to uh, uh, to the environment for the for the transfer for these astral beings. So when I this is a very subtle thing, but when I first went there, they healed my heart. 
and the my heart it's that same place when uh, when the stroke occurred that I felt that um, my guru had not was then with me the, was and I I think that it hurt my heart and I put down healing my foot and my my leg and my arm and but they that's what they did thank you for telling us that story around us Rachel when you hear around us the story of John of God what what comes to you what comes to me is a kind of an awe of the mystery that is alive in this world. And um, just how amazing, um, how amazing it is and how, um, how much grace is present. It's just that's an incredible um, that's right. thing. It is. And, you know, if I think on it, there is this flow of suffering humanity that goes past this man. And something in this world is large enough to meet with it and heal it. Something comes through him that is so much larger than the flow of suffering. And that gives me a sense of gratitude that that something exists. That's what I felt. Yeah. That's what I felt. And they, well, mothers bringing deformed babies and people with all sorts of uh, illnesses and John of God uh, till our, shows nothing but just compassion. Well, thank you so much, Ramdas. Rachel, any last word from you? Just that I love you, Ramdas, and I love you, Michael. Uh, 